Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Racism has too long been a part of our American experience. The Civil War and the constitutional amendments that followed, the Supreme Court decisions ordering the desegregation of schools, and the civil rights movements have not ended racism in America. Professor Annie S. Barnes holds a Ph.D. in social anthropology from the University of Virginia and is retired from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia. She's the author of Everyday Racism, a book for all Americans. This book is based on the racist experiences suffered by 146 black college students Professor Barnes has interviewed. Professor Barnes describes effects of racism on black people and what black people and white people can do to combat it. I spoke with Professor Barnes in February of 2001 and asked her to begin by telling us about where racism is experienced. I talk about racism in the major places where whites do racism. And and those places are several, uh, starting with the community. Uh, blacks face racism when they live in the community with whites, they face racism when they go shopping. Um, they face it uh, um, from daycare to graduate school. They also face it in the workplace. And, of course, they face it with, not of course, but they do face it with blacks uh, and um, law enforcement officers. And then they face it actually with um, when they're eating out or working out. So racism is here, there, and everywhere. Well, I think it's important that um, we listen to some examples or some specifics. Um, I think that many white people will say, um, I'm not racist, uh, but their actions may be seen as racist. That's right. Can you explain that for us? I sure can. Um, in, in reality, whites are generally aware of the fact when they are racist. You see, we have actually three types of whites in America. One type is, of course, uh, made up of those people who are non-racist. These are the people who think so well of themselves until they will not do racism. Then there is a second type, uh, which we call the blatant racist. And these people do racism either on a subtle level or outwardly so that everybody can see it. And then we have a great army of whites in between who support the blatant racist, which means then we end up with a large number of whites doing racism. Now, there are some very specific reasons as to why we have that large number of whites in our American society doing racism. One of the reasons is um, because they are afraid. Now, when we talk about being afraid, whites being afraid, uh, we must explain that. What that means, one, is that whites do not want 
to break the barrier between blacks and whites because it will derail their wonderful superior experience as they have told me, even when they are not superior. And then a second reason that explains um, being afraid is that many whites do not want blacks to get to know them and really know what they are like. And as a result, then, they talk about being afraid. Then there's one final point on that, and that is they feel that association with blacks will, will bring them down. And so afraid is one uh, word that, that whites use repeatedly for, for doing racism against blacks. But there are many, many more points. For example, jealousy. Jealousy is so strong within uh, the white group among, uh, against blacks until really and truly uh, it just almost causes them to do automated racism. I'll just give you one simple example of that. Uh, I'm re- I recall Lawton, who was just a third grade student who lives in uh, Florida, uh, uh, and he made an A on an examination and sat in the front of the classroom. His teacher asked, white teacher asked him to stay after school and to talk about his examination and really to retake it. She decided to ask Lawton all of the answers without giving him a pencil or a piece of paper or even the questions. Lawton had missed two of the questions, and he even answered those orally. When she discovered that Lawton was such a brilliant student, she decided to move him to the back of the room immediately. He tried to learn, and he couldn't. He went to her, and he said, you know, I really cannot learn in the back of the room. May I move up front? She said, no. So he asked his parents to go to school. And the end of the story is the parents went to school and the teacher said to uh, Lawton, just do the best you can. Now that's an example of jealousy of whites against a small third year older and adult white against a third year older. Now, if we were to take uh, uh, older adults, it would be the same thing on a larger scale. So jealousy is a second reason whites do racism. Uh, A third reason is that whites are power-driven. Whites love power. All people love power. But they will take power to the disadvantage of other people. And when they subordinate African Americans, that's a great power for them. And they love it and they enjoy it. And it's quite unfortunate. And then, of course, not only are they power-driven, but they are money-driven. And to subordinate a group of people, you're able to pay them wages cheaper than you can pay other people, and therefore racism becomes very attractive uh, to some whites in the American society. I think there's a lot that can be said about lower wages, particularly for people uh, who work in the employ of others in their home. Yes, yes. Can you talk about that for us? I I sure can. And in fact, um, I was once a domestic worker, and I worked for $12 a week, and actually, I did absolutely everything, and the last week I worked, I didn't get paid. Now, I'd like to bring that up to date. Um, I, I know I know many domestic workers, and these women work uh, for very low wages, but are expected to do a great deal of work. 
I'll give you just one example. One woman um, was working for a surgeon's family. The surgeon was deceased and the woman was ill. Uh, the family is really a multimillionaire family. And the mother moved from um, our area here up to northern Virginia. And the, this black woman uh, went with her to northern Virginia and traveled back on weekends to her home here. They were paying her $250. The, the, surgeon, the deceased surgeon's wife wanted her to work day and night for $250 and to travel um, at least uh, 200 miles uh, each week in order to get to their mother uh, or in order to get to this woman to take care of her. Yet this black uh, woman was so very, very kind to her. And one of the millionaire sons, multimillionaire sons, said to his mother, why not leave her in your will? The mother, this woman, was had paid her low wages, and she had complained. She said to the family, $250 are not enough for me to work day and night. And so after complaining, one of the multimillionaire sons decided that he should ask his mother to leave her in the will, but she only received $25,000 after working for this woman almost a quarter of a century. Why do you think that happens? That happens because whites enjoy saving their money, and that's one reason why they do racism. That was a racist situation. She want, she, she was power, she was money driven. Uh, her family was well equipped in terms of finances, and, and her husband left her uh, well off. And yet she was so power-driven to get money until it was absolutely important for her to work this woman for low wages. And the woman worked because she needed the money. When you say whites enjoy, is that not an all-encompassing term? I mean, no. do you, is that true for every white person? That's not true for every white person. You know, I had the privilege of working or Metropolitan Opera star Risa Stevens as a college young woman. And back in those days, Risa paid me such high wages and, um, and, and treated me so lovely. In fact, we used to have conversation in the afternoons when I was not busy, and uh, I just had a wonderful time with her. So, no, there are whites who do not pay low wages, but in general, that is the situation across America. Um, however, these women, uh, white women, have a wonderful relationship with their servants, and so they are able to get them to work for low wages because they are so kind and, and appear so appreciative for what they do. I'd like to take a moment and tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Annie S. Barnes about a recent book that she wrote called Everyday Racism. Annie S. Barnes has a doctorate in social anthropology from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and is now a retired professor of sociology and anthropology from Norfolk State University in Virginia. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Annie, in your studies of social anthropology over the history that uh, you've been uh, a student of these topics, what kinds of changes have you observed? Anthropology was born in the 19th century. A great deal of its content was focused on race. As 
time went on, anthropologists decided to turn to other countries and study the exotic, and that's why so many Americans enjoy reading the exotic stories of people who are non-Western. Anthropologists rarely write about uh, race uh, in terms of African Americans. I looked and read all the literature that I could possibly find about race that anthropologists had written. Once I had read all the literature available that I could find, then I decided that anthropology needed something else to make it complete. And so I realized that it needed a book on racism. When I looked at books that had been written by sociologists and other people on racism, I knew that indeed anthropology deserved a book. And as a black American, during this Black History Month, as we were told by the founder, we cannot stand back and wait for whites to write the books that we need. And therefore, I decided to write a book that we need. And that's why I wrote a book that is so tactful and loving. And at the conclusion of each chapter, I have pages in there that talk about how black Americans can improve race relations as well as how white Americans can improve race relations. And therefore, it's a book that one can love and will love if he or she starts reading it because it gives us the answers to our questions and at the same time, it is not offensive. I want to ask you about what white Americans and black Americans can do to improve race relations. But before that, I I think it would be important to talk about everyday racism, how it occurs, how it is seen by black people when perhaps it is not seen as racism by white people. Can you give us some examples? Uh, well, yes. Uh, I, I should preface that by saying that when we say everyday racism, or when I say everyday racism, and all other blacks, we are talking about systematic behavior that happens over and over every single day. Uh, and if a particular black encounters several whites or the same white several times a day, then that particular black person encounters racism several times every single day of their lives. Now, on the other hand, um, if we were to look at some examples, I would have to say that blacks, are, that whites are very much aware of racism. You know, I give whites a great deal of credit. I think they are very bright people, and there is no way that I could convince myself through my research with, with black Americans as well as with white Americans that they do not know what they are doing. In fact, I have done racism research among whites to make sure that I'm on the right track. So every white American who does uh, racism knows that it is racism. Now, sometimes they do it so automatically until it seems as though it's inadvertent. In other words, uh, whites are so creative with their racism until it just comes out at the, at, at the sight of skin color that is different from their own. What do you mean creative with racism? Uh, whites have all kinds of ways of doing racism. Black Americans around their dinner table 
try to tell their young children how to confront racism and overcome it in their everyday encounters. But that's absolutely important, uh, absolutely uh, uh, um, impossible, because when these students get out or when adults get out, whites change their techniques, techniques and they do it so quickly until often African Americans are just unable to react. And when I say creative, whites use uh, different parts of their bodies to do racism. They use their faces, and you're not expecting them to turn up their lips, to frown, or um, to look um, at another person um, in a way that the black person feels demeaning. Or they may say something that you would never expect the person to say. Um, I'm reminded of uh, of a situation that happened about a month ago. A friend of mine who is Catholic had just finished attending a, a racism seminar in her particular church. And at the conclusion of that seminar, uh, a white woman who is Polish said, um, if you will teach me to cook collard greens and chitlins, I will teach you to do Polish dishes. My friend, uh, who is an educated woman, could not believe that they had gone through this seminar and she would come outside of the room and do one more racist experience before she left. And so we have concluded that there is no doubt that whites are very much aware of racism. And this woman had been very vocal in uh, the discussion. And because she was so vocal, um, she believes that this woman wanted to make sure that she got another dose of racism before she left there. So whites are well aware. They are bright people who knew, know exactly what they are doing. And that's why I'm so optimistic that they can stop it when they get ready. And that's why in my last chapter in this book, I make a plea to all white Americans uh, to please stop doing racism because racism hurts the hearts of every African American. It lowers um, their self-esteem. Um, it also causes them physical problems like high blood pressure, diabetes. It's amazing how much stress a racism causes African Americans, and it can be ever so slight, but still it has uh, a, a great impact on their health, on their mental outlook, and on their lives, and on their accomplishments, on the quality of their work. Racism is just a great big, awful social scourge that is the greatest one in the American society. Annie, I would like you to tell us how uh, racism is done in the world of shopping. Racism uh, in the world of shopping uh, takes many forms. Uh, one of the forms that it takes uh, um, is, of course, uh, a number of racial slurs. For example, uh, blacks who go shopping usually have money to pay for what they have and one of the things that salespersons across this country will say to a black who who attempts to buy something rather nice is that we do not have a layaway plan we do not take uh, food stamps we have told you people that we do not take food stamps 
um, uh, I'm uh, who's next? And even though a black woman can be standing at a counter or a black man, and there is nobody else except the person, the white person, the salesperson is helping. And then before that sale is completed, a white person walks up to the counter, and the white salesperson will walk over to those two people and will ask who's next. And that hurts black people. It keeps them from enjoying spending their money. And all of us love to go to the malls, love to go to upscale stores. Spending our money in America is one of the greatest thrills that all people enjoy. But black Americans do not have that opportunity because of the many racial slurs um, they are confronted with when they go shopping in the various stores. And in fact, when they go to upscale stores like Neiman Marcus, Six Sacks, Fifth Avenue, and so on, uh, often salespersons will not even um, wait on them because um, they won't even say, may I help you, because they feel that they cannot afford the merchandise, and so the black shopper has to go to the saleswoman, and then, of course, that takes away uh, their joy. But one of the examples that I truly like occurred in Manhattan, New York. Um, There was this college student in my sample who was working, of course, in an upscale uh, men's store in New York. And his boss every day talked about black shoppers, and it was always demeaning. And so finally one day he said to him, when black shoppers come in, they do not know name brands, how much they want to pay for something, nor the color of things that they want. So don't give them much attention, but do just the opposite for blacks. Well, it hurt Russell so badly, the young college student, until he decided to quit. He just could not stand any more of this. And so we're talking here about uh, about men, grown adult working men, going to an upscale uh, men's store in Manhattan uh, to buy something very nice for themselves, but yet they could not spend their money uh, with with joy, with the same kind of joy that white Americans spend their money. Do you find that there are different kinds of racism or it's more blatant in different parts of the United States? It's both blatant and subtle all over the United States. That's why I used a nationwide sample. And in fact, from Wall Street to the most southern firm, and you will find in this book, there is blatant racism. You can just bring it right on down the line to the most um, to the smallest place or smallest group or whatever, and it's just as blatant. Well, considering all of these situations, um, what can be done to improve race relations? Oh, there is so much that can be done. Um, actually, um, Barry, um, if we were to talk about shopping, for instance, um, it's a simple matter. All that need all white salespersons need to do are these kinds of things. When a shopper enters a store, even though he or she may be in a jogging suit, and requests, for example, to see a, uh, a watches, 
ask the price range and then show all of the watches, when I say all, a sampling of the watches in that price range rather than pulling out those at the lower end of the price range because that black shopper has then to say, please tell me or show me the rest of the of your merchandise. So that seems like a simple matter to me. And then a second thing that they can do is never to say who's next. But just simply do your job. I mean, you know, those of us who work and do our work well, we have to be alert. And, 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 and that means then that salespersons will become warm and loving and kind. And that isn't hard to do. I mean, to say, may I help you? Um, I'm so happy you, you shopped. Thank you for shopping. And, and say the very same things to them uh, that they say to others. Show them all the merchandise. And, and help them to, um, to buy what seems to be very nice for them. If, if salespersons do that, that will be wonderful. But there is something else that needs to be done. Every, uh, culp- every store in America needs, to, it, of any size, needs to conduct undoing, what we call undoing racism workshops. That is bring in blacks who really are experts and and blacks who do not have chips on their shoulders and who will teach um, the personnel in those stores like Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Hexen, come right on down the line, um, how to treat black Americans. And if if we were to have all of our stores in America to conduct undoing workshops just just let's say, twice a year, what we would find is that shopping would become wonderful for blacks and the salespersons would feel so much better about themselves. And then another thing that could happen is that whites need to stop following blacks and searching them. Uh, Instead, they need to, of course, do their job and see that nobody's stealing because in my book you'll find that blacks have been uh, uh, taken to managers' offices for stealing when whites were the ones on that same aisle doing the stealing. And so uh, what we need there is for whites to be alert as salespersons, but do not, but they should not make black shoppers uncomfortable. Now, these things don't seem hard to do. And, and, and stay away from the racial slurs. You know, um, don't tell people about uh, 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 food stamps, because if someone has come in um to buy something from Neiman Marcus or from Hex, or we can come on down the line. Um, certainly, they have the money to pay for it, and so therefore, they should never use racial slurs. You people, I've told you people, uh, who's next? Um, we don't have a layaway plan. These, all they have to do is to get those things out of their vocabulary, and that's an easy thing, Barry, for people to do. Well, Annie S. Barnes, I want to thank you for joining us here on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. The most interesting book that I've read lately relates directly to my own, which is Driving While Black by Kenneth Meeks. In this book, he talks about racial profiling, and uh, and he and he helps people to understand what it is and and what 
and the difficulties that blacks have driving um, on turnpikes. And he also talks in this book a great deal about one's legal rights um, when one is stopped by police officers. Now, I like this book um, um, because he also uh, talks about um, shopping in a group. Uh, now, I talk about shopping individually. I talk about uh, policing individually. And so as you can see then, this book is one of my great loves uh, because it is in tune with my own book. Um, it's just that we are treating the same topics in a different way. Tell us the name again. The name of the book is Driving While Black by Kenneth Meeks, M-E-E-K-S. Annius Barnes, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. You're welcome. I enjoyed it, Barry. Professor Annie S. Barnes, now retired from the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Norfolk State University in Norfolk, Virginia, is the author of Everyday Racism, a book for all Americans. The book that she recommends is Driving While Black by Kenneth Meeks. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.